I'm John Banther, and welcome to Season 4 of Classical Breakdown. From WETA Classical in Washington, we're your guide to classical music. In this episode, I'm joined by WETA Classical's Bill Bukowski, and we get into one of the most loved works of Sergei Rachmaninoff, his Rhapsody on a Theme of Paganini. There is a lot to discover, like musical themes hidden in plain sight, how Rachmaninoff came up with that beautiful melody in the 18th variation, and what he had to do before the premiere just to calm his nerves. Plus, stay with us to the end as we read your reviews from Apple Podcasts. This work is a favorite for so many, myself included. I got into vinyl records, Bill, in the 2000s when I was in high school, and one of my first and most listened to records features this work with the Philadelphia Orchestra, pianist Van Cliburn, and conductor Eugene Ormandy. I've listened to it so much, Bill, there is definitely groove wear there. Now that's a good recording. And it's one that just captured me the moment I heard it. Did you have anything like this when you first experienced this piece? I've always loved this work, and I've heard so many different recordings. I think some of my favorites are probably Arthur Rubinstein and the Chicago Symphony under Fritz Reiner from the 1950s. More recently, Stephen Huff with the Dallas Symphony Orchestra under Andrew Litt and a series of live concert recordings they made, which were really, really good. And, of course, there's Rachmaninoff's own with the Philadelphia Orchestra, his favorite band. That's true. And the one we're going to be hearing in this episode is the one with the Philadelphia Orchestra, of course, with Yannick Nezesegan conducting, and at the piano it is Daniel Trifonov. Superb recording, by the way. Absolutely. So stay with us as we explore Rachmaninoff's Rhapsody on a Theme of Paganini, because later in this episode, we'll learn how the 18th variation, probably your favorite, got its famous melody, and we're also going to tell you a little story about the premiere with Rachmaninoff you may not know. So getting into the piece here, we learned from our episode on Rachmaninoff, episode number 50, that much of his career was as a conductor, and this work from 1934 is one of a handful that he wrote from 1917 until his death. So he wrote this from July to August in 1934 at his villa in Switzerland, and it was in these summer months that he was able to compose, right, Bill? Because otherwise he was pretty preoccupied. Yeah, he was busy as a concert pianist. Shortly after the revolution, Rachmaninoff was like a number of emigres. He had to leave the country and leave everything behind. Mm -hmm. And that included uh, conducting gigs, composition. So to support himself and his family, he had to make a living as a concert pianist. Fortunately, he was one of the greatest pianists on the planet at that time. I think his only real rival was Vladimir Horowitz. So I also love the surprise local connection here, too, because this piece was premiered in Baltimore, Maryland that year in 1934 with the Philadelphia Orchestra and Rachmaninoff at the keyboard. So, Bill, the title here, Rhapsody on a Theme of Paganini, what is this theme of his that Rachmaninoff is using? The theme is a very popular theme, as a matter of fact. It was the 24th from the 24 Caprices for Solo Violin by Niccolo Paganini. And there's just something about this piece that I think maybe the mood of it or the sound of it just sort of encapsulizes Paganini and his whole sort of image that, that has come down to us over the years. You know, the, the skeletal-looking performer who was probably, you know, had made a deal with the devil to be able to play so well. I mean, Robert Schumann uh, did uh, sort of a variation on this particular piece, uh, Franz Liszt did, and of course, most famously, Brahms's two books of variations on that same theme that uh, Rachmaninoff is playing with here. So while this is played as one continuous piece, 
the 24 variations that follow after the, the theme here by Rachman and off, they kind of naturally fall into three different sections. So the first section includes an introduction, theme, and variations, one through 10. And Bill, this grabs you, especially me, right from the beginning with the first notes. There's so much character, there's so much color, and it flies by fast. These opening variations and, and the theme and everything 30 seconds or less, some of these. They're very quick. This was, I think, one of the reasons why Rachmaninoff, in putting this together, opted for Rhapsody rather than Variation. We'll talk about that because he wanted to grab you right from the very beginning. And he does. And I love how when the theme comes in and the orchestra is playing it, the piano is just kind of plinking along. A, E. Just kind of the most basic, bare minimum outline you can have of the key here, A minor. It's almost like he's talking with the orchestra, like that, that. Da, da, da. Yes, I love that. There's a quote here from Rachmaninoff you can share with us that I think already brings to an idea of the kinds of sounds we're hearing. I am not a composer who produces works to the formulas of preconceived theories. Music, I have always felt, should be the expression of a composer's complex personality. A composer's music should express the country of his birth, his love affairs, his religion, the books that have influenced him pictures he loves. It should be the sum total of a composer's experiences. And it sounds like when he takes all of that to heart, Bill, you get something like this. Exactly. The first several variations go by in a flash. The fifth one is so interesting, and I think maybe a lot of people haven't given this one too much thought because it's also rather short. But the piano and the orchestra, they're actually only really playing during each other's rest. It's so fast and there's so much happening, you don't really realize that they're playing in the windows of each other. There's a couple of notes and some winds that do some other things too, but it's like 90%, they're not even playing at the same time. So even just here, you have the virtuosity of playing, but you have to have the virtuosity of playing together and locking in, you know, across a big stage, everyone playing together like that or not playing together. Yeah, it's interesting as you're talking about it, it's making me think, now I want to hear it again. Yes. The seventh variation has a lot more going on as well. We've had this theme from Paganini. Now we get it in some kind of fragments played by the bassoon. It's kind of ponderous or searching. And then we get a new theme brought in on the piano playing chords. And Rachmaninoff is playing here. He's adding in Dies Irae. And it's kind of hidden in plain sight. But maybe, Bill, first you can kind of remind us, what is Dies Irae? Dies Irae comes from the Requiem Mass, the Catholic Requiem Mass, and it means day of wrath, quite uh, literally. For whatever reason, this was a tune or a theme or a melody that just obsessed Rachmaninoff, and it became sort of his ghost theme. It pops up in a lot of his works. One of the fun things about listening to Rachmaninoff is listening for where the DACRA comes in again, because it's almost like his signature, you know? It's like Rachmaninoff was here. And he kind of hides it, because you have these chords that don't exactly sound like it, but the top notes here, it's DACRA. And he brings it back right away with the 10th variation. But now the Diazire has so much um, character. And before Bill, when it was kind of hidden in plain sight in the harmony, he then kind of hides it in plain sight in the rhythm with this kind of American-inspired rhythm. But it's still the Diazire. 
you almost never know when it's going to come back. Yeah, it's interesting. It almost sounded like something Gershwin would write. It's also a reminder that the time that Rachmaninoff wrote this, the most popular music on the planet was jazz. You hear that in this music, don't you? In the rhythm that he uses for the Diazire, it sounds like it comes out of some kind of Gershwin piece or from some, um, maybe a dance club or something. Yeah. So it makes the Diazire sound with it. It's very unexpected. Yeah, and as a musician, Rachmaninoff would have been very well aware of jazz and the idea that you mix a lot of different themes in when to make it sound like an improvisation. And I think that's sort of what he's doing here. Oh, yes. Now, it might be easy for someone listening to think that, well, this is kind of, this is a concerto, right? There's a soloist, and then there's an orchestra behind them. But this is different here. We're working with, it's a rhapsody. So what, how would we describe or define that? Well, a rhapsody is different from a concerto. A concerto is sort of a serious piece of music. It's structured along very definite lines, whereas a rhapsody is sort of, by its very nature, is sort of freeing. It allows you to sort of rhapsodize, for a better word. I'm sorry that there's a better way to put that. But Rachmaninoff is being very specific when he did his. And the thing to remember, too, about Rachmaninoff is after three symphonies and four concertos, this was the last essay that he wrote for piano and orchestra. And it's almost like he's saying to himself, now it's time for me to have a little fun. And he's definitely doing that in this particular work. I get this idea that he was probably sitting, as you said, at his uh, estate in Switzerland, Senar, sitting at the piano with the lake and the windows and just kind of tootling around with this earworm, which just so happened to be this Paganini caprice, and then just going off on a thing. Hmm, I think I might have something here, grabbing his pen and starting to write things down. Your description of rhapsodic or rhapsody is is great because it is one of those things where it's kind of like, well, you you know it when you hear it as well. You also see, well, it's one continuous piece. It's um, free-flowing. It doesn't have that structure you described about a concerto. And contrasting moods, color, and tonality. We've especially heard many different moods, many different colors so far. The tonality has mostly been the same. We've been in A minor up until now, I believe, through the 10th variation. Once we get to the 11th, we get to what we kind of call that middle section variations 11 through 18. And it's here in this section that he starts to move away from A minor and explore some pretty distant keys. So with all this in mind, going into variation number 11 already fits into what you were just saying, Bill, about Rhapsody and everything. This has a strong kind of improvisatory noodling kind of sound like it's he's seeing the lakes in the background and it sounds like it comes from also you can hear it coming from some of the ideas here like an american jazz club yeah think of all the the influences that he would have picked up uh, in his tours and his traveling and interacting with other musicians and other kinds of music yet at the same time putting it into his own art and with the 12th variation that is when it starts to branch away from A minor. And we go into to D minor. There's this very light outline of D, F, and A, pizzicato on the strings outlining D minor. But you still hear the Paganini theme coming in as even just a fragment, almost dreamlike in the oboe, and then followed by the clarinet. There's little moments like this that just kind of fly by where something's happening, but you don't quite catch it. But the more that you listen to this piece and listen intently, the more you pick up on little things like a fragment of a melody here or something there, or you can better hear how something develops. Now, Bill, Variation 18 is the most famous. 
But I bet if you went to anyone, say in a concert hall, you know, sing the tune from Variation 18 of Rachmaninoff's Rhapsody, they wouldn't know it, but they know it when they hear it. This yeah. is this is so popular. Yeah, it's it's popped up in movie scores and TV shows and themes. It's very popular on its own. Yet here it is embedded deep in this particular 25-minute work. And it's, as he said, he said, this one is for my agent. He knew he had a hit on his hands. Thinking about him in this time of his life, he's been through so much, conducting, moving to a new country, a new career as really performing. He knows how to sell something. He knows when he needs to do it. But now here's the interesting thing. How does this theme relate at all to Paganini's tune? It's very genius what Rachmaninoff is doing here. He's using inversion. Now, we're going to get into some music theory here, but don't worry. There's not a test. It's actually not that hard. I think we're all going to get this. And I'll put some more information in pictures, maybe, in music on the show notes page as well. But he uses inversion. So to go to a simple idea of inversion, we can think of a simple chord, like a C major chord, C, E, and G. That's a nice, easy chord. But now what if we take that C and we flip it up an octave higher. So now we have E, G, and C. We call that first inversion, for example. You can see how in a chord you can flip things up and invert it. But what about a melody, which we have here? Here is what is happening, because you can't just flip the music over or upside down or something like that. What Rachmaninoff does is he takes the entire theme of Paganini and inverts it. He does this by looking at Paganini's tune, and he looks at the first note, and the second note and how they relate to each other. We see that Paganini goes up a minor third for the second note, so Rachmaninoff goes from his first note down a minor third to his second note. Going to the third note, we see that Paganini goes down a half step for that note. So what does Rachmaninoff do? He goes up a half step. Does that make sense so far? So far, I'm with you. Okay, so Bill, when Paganini goes down a whole step for his fourth note, Rachmaninoff would go... A whole step up. Exactly. That is what inversion is. And he does it for basically the entire tune of Paganini's theme, changes the rhythm a little, although it is quite similar, and you get this gorgeous melody. It's so funny because this is one of the things I love about music in that Paganini had no idea the influence that he would have when he wrote this 24th Caprice and how much people would love it. But he also didn't realize he was also basically writing almost a mathematical formula for how to create one of the most beloved melodies that Rachmaninoff would later, as in this case, come up with. That's right. I love that. And this is also, it is very romantic sounding as well. And there are so many instances where we see this same formula play out. Tchaikovsky, for instance, in terms of how you repeat things. And this is where I think you're exactly right. This is for my agent. Because it's the piano alone. Then it's the orchestra with some piano accompaniment. Then they come together the third time even bigger, just so intertwined. You know, it's interesting as I'm thinking about Rachmaninoff and his music and most of his best-loved pieces, in the middle of it, there's a killer tune that is just unforgettable, like the, the slow movement of the symphony number no. two yes. or um, the slow passage from another piano and orchestra work, the concerto number no. two. And actually, it was a pop singer in, uh, in the 1970s, Eric Carmen, who was a big Rachmaninoff fan, and he, 
created a couple of hits based on some Rachmaninoff tunes, and, and he definitely credited Rachmaninoff for the tunes because he loved his music so much. We're going to take a quick break, but right after that, stay with us because we'll get into a story about the premiere and then the final variations of this work. Classical Breakdown, your guide to classical music, is made possible by WETA Classical and by Jenner & Block, partnering with its clients in significant litigation, major strategic corporate transactions, government contracting and controversies, and appellate advocacy. Learn more at Jenner.com. Okay, Bill, we've heard some pretty intense music so far, some pretty beautiful music so far. Rachmaninoff was definitely channeling his inner Paganini when he wrote this because it's so difficult. In fact, maybe he did that too much because it was so difficult, especially these last parts here, that he was pretty nervous before the premiere. He was unsure about maybe how it would go. It was so difficult. So he did something that he basically never did, and that was have a drink. He had a drink of creme de menthe to calm his nerves before the premiere. And apparently it worked and it went so well, he did the same for every other performance of this Rhapsody. There's a couple of interesting things that come to mind about that was, uh, one, apparently it was a friend of his, another pianist, Ben Omosievich, who he must have had a bottle of creme de menthe at hand. I mean, it, mm -hmm. it, could, it could have been a bottle of whiskey for all we know, but that's what he had. Yeah. And, you know, he said, drink this, it'll, it'll calm your nerves. But the interesting thing was him keeping a bottle under the piano every time. He, it's a little bit like a baseball player and superstitions. Like you always tie your right shoe first or you always have a, a meal of a hot dog and a beer before the game. It's it's like the same kind of thing. It, it's really it's, – it's funny and it's another way of sort of bringing Rachmaninoff back down to earth. I love it. And I'm sure, I mean, he's not doing shots here before uh, next to the stage door. It's a, it's a nice sip here. Well, it's, it's creme de menthe, so it's not, you know, we're not talking really hard stuff. So there you go, Rachmaninoff and Creme de Mint. I'll have to enjoy some of that while I listen to this piece again. And you can hear why he was nervous, because it's almost cruel how he goes from the 18th variation into the 19th variation. It already sounds way more difficult than it seems on the, um, on the piano. And I mean that, for instance, when Daniel Trifonov is playing this 19th variation, it sounds quite fine, quite easy. It sounds normal. But it takes, it takes years to be able to play so evenly and with so much finesse and bringing out every single note that you want or don't want to bring out. And he did this on purpose. It's a little bit like waking from a dream, coming from the 18th variation. And apparently Beethoven had done something similar. It's almost like it's a joke, but it's like he's saying, okay, you know, wake up, time to get back down to the business of having fun. Let's, let's go. I can definitely hear that. And with each couple variations after this, I think it's 19 through 22, each variation is a little bit faster. Marked a little bit faster and faster. And when we get to the 23rd variation with the theme returning, it's like a wild ride to the end. And I also, it reminds me of moments in his symphonic dances, which of course comes a decade later after this, but I can really hear, maybe that's just Rachmaninoff sound. Yeah, and it's interesting you, you mentioned the symphonic dances because this work that we're talking about was his last piano and orchestra piece, and Symphonic Dances was his last symphonic piece. And you're right, they both end the same way. It's almost like he's wrapping things up, and he knows it. And there's a cadenza at the end of this 23rd variation as well. And it's, um, I mean, it's quite huge with the orchestra, and almost like when you mentioned almost like a joke going from the 18th to the 19th, right. I think it's similar into the 24th in that it just kind of goes into it. Huh. 
Again, I have to listen to it again. And as it goes into the 24th and final variation, the Dies Irae theme returns. I also get some sounds that remind me of the kind of the church bell influence of his um, of his youth as well. The end is brilliant, isn't it? Oh, it's, I just absolutely love it. It's so delightful. Every time I hear it, it puts a smile on my face. I love it so much because it's so hard, it's so virtuosic, it's so gorgeous in every way from beginning until now. And then at the end, you expect this triumphant finish, and it's just kind of like, ah, I don't care. Uh, I don't care. Well, it's more like wrapping it up. It's like putting a little signature or tying the bow or something like that. Dum, da, da, dum. I mean, it's it's yeah. so delightful. It never fails to put a smile on my face whenever I hear it. I'm the exact same way. Now, if when you hear this variation, it's all over the place for the pianist. I'll also put a video on the show notes page or a link to YouTube. Anna Fedorova, she's a piano soloist. She has a lot of performances on YouTube. Great camera work at the Concertgebouw in the Netherlands. Um and you can just see I mean, the hands are almost a blur what's happening. She's a wonderful Rachmaninoff pianist, too. Yes. So definitely check that out. So Rachmaninoff's Rhapsody on a theme of Paganini, it's quite a, a wild ride. There are a lot of little things here that you can listen to. And the more you listen to this work, the more you'll pick up on even more things like this. Okay, so now it's time to read your reviews from Apple Podcasts. What do we have, Bill? Well, we have a note from Classical Anne, who says, Thank you again for another great season of Classical Breakdown. I especially love the episode when you and Linda Carducci were talking about Grieg's Piano Concerto. I think you should feature her more often. I'm looking forward to the next season and learning all about the music I love. Well, thank you so much, Classical Anne. And of course, we'll pass that on to Linda as well. She's wonderful, isn't she? In- indeed. So do you have anything else, Bill, for Rachmaninoff's Rhapsody? Go back and listen to it. Find your favorite recording and dive in and enjoy. Thank you so much, Bill. My pleasure. Thanks for listening to Classical Breakdown. Check out the show notes page at classicalbreakdown.org for more information about this episode. If you have any questions or episode ideas, send me an email at classicalbreakdown at weta.org. And if you enjoyed this episode, leave a review in your podcast app and tell a friend. I'm John Banther. Thanks for listening to Classical Breakdown, your guide to classical music from WETA Classical. Classical.